Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. All of it brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. Much more on that in just a moment, Jim, let's get to our good martini. And while 2020 is going to be focused on primarily as a presidential election year, there's also obviously plenty of other races, including every House seat and roughly a third of the Senate seats. And one of the top targets for Democrats as they try to win back the Senate majority is the seat held by current Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who was first elected in 1984. And if anyone has followed his campaign since then, He's a very effective campaigner and will uh, do what it takes to win. So Amy McGrath is now the white knight for the uh, for the Democrats here. She lost a congressional race in uh, Kentucky's 6th Congressional District last year to a guy named Andy Barr. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But she is now uh, being toasted all over liberal media because they are so desperate to take out Mitch McConnell. But Mitch McConnell not wasting any time going right after Amy McGrath with his new web ad from Team Mitch, and it's all Amy McGrath's own words. Here's the first excerpt. And I think the wall is stupid. I mean, I really do. It's a waste of money. This is what we need in this country. They're here. They're not going anywhere. Let's let's bring them in. Yes, I would support a move towards universal health care. If we were to start 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and build a health care system from scratch, I think, in my opinion, single payer is the way to go. I don't think government should be involved in making decisions on a woman's body. And if that weren't enough in a deep red state, uh, here's what she thought about Trump winning in 2016. Then, of course, the results of the election. We have a new commander-in-chief. And that morning I woke up like somebody has ever been And I felt like, what has just happened to my country? The only feeling I can describe that's any close to it was the feeling I had after my work. The only thing I can say that's close to Trump winning the election was 9-11. Jim, we're not done yet. Even over at MSNBC, where she announced her candidacy on the uh, Morning Joe show, and she got a lot of viral help from that, Jake Sherman of Politico and also an MSNBC contributor dumping a huge bucket of cold water on Amy McGrath's chances. Kentucky is a state that voted by 30 points for Donald Trump. Amy McGrath, while I agree with Senator McCaskill that she has a lot of upside and a lot of interesting elements to her candidacy, lost the easiest district for a Democrat to win in the best year for Democrats in more than a decade in her race against Andy Barr. Uh, now, I'm not now, saying why, this... why, why do you think that is, Jake? What, what, what was the buzz <laughs> afterward? Did they blame her as a candidate? Yes, why very much she... so. Why yes, the, and, the and Democrats and D.C. Democrats did not want her, despite what they'll say now, did not want her to win that uh, primary. That's about as kind as you can say on MSNBC to say this person probably doesn't have much of a chance. And to top it all off, Steve Kornacki, who's their number cruncher over there, says that she could be the next Beto O'Rourke, who the Democrats will donate in just huge buckets full to because they want to get rid of Mitch McConnell so much. But she's probably not going to win. Jim, this is a pretty good combo. Yeah. And let's, you know, step back for one moment before I dump uh, McGrath here. And just kind of look at the overall situation for the Democrats. Uh, you got to keep Alabama. We talked about how tough that's going to be unless Republicans nominate Roy Moore. And so far, he's not leading their primary. 
They want to take the seat in Arizona, and they probably have a good shot. McSally got appointed to that seat. McSally's going to have the advantage of incumbency, but, you know, that, that one's probably a jump ball. Uh, you know, they got to hold on to Michigan. Uh, Republicans are high on John James. He ran a really good campaign in a lousy year last year. But let's face it, if you're the Democrats and you really want to build a Senate majority, you're really looking at North Carolina. They really like the odds of Cal Cunningham against Tom Tillis. And that's a race where, you know, if you're going to dump in a lot of money, North Carolina is not a bad place to do it. Maine, I think Susan Collins is a lot stronger than most people give her credit for. Every six years, Democrats say they're coming for her. Every six years, they get disappointed. Maybe the Brett Kavanaugh vote is some sort of galvanizing force. But honestly, I doubt it. I think, you know, Susan Collins really knows where her state is. And the third one you'd say is a really, you know, good high value target would be Cory Gardner in Colorado. There are much better ways to dump a lot of money. The other thing I think that the the coverage of McGrath suggests, and I, I mentioned this about Beto last cycle, and I feel really vindicated by how that race turned out. You know, it's possible McGrath is a better than usual candidate for the Democrats in Kentucky. I think any realistic assessment of the race, including what you heard on MSNBC there, would say, look, this is a pretty darn Republican state. Democrats had some success in gubernatorial races, but they really haven't come close since Clinton in 96 in the presidential race. Trump's probably going to win this state by a wide margin. All in all, this is really not a great circumstance to try to win a Senate race. And McConnell sure as heck knows what he's doing. He's never going to lack for money. Democrat grassroots might be really mad at Mitch McConnell, but the odds of knocking him off aren't that good. And we remember talking about Allison Lundergan Grimes, you know, six years ago. The problem with the Democrats who are so eager to see the great Southern Democratic hope is that every single cycle they convince themselves that they've got some up oh, here, here comes Beta O'Rourke. And of course, before that, they were really, really excited about uh, Pink Sneakers, Wendy, Wendy Davis. Yes. And then Allison Lundergan Grimes and John Ossoff. And you know, every single time, oh, this is the guy, this is the gal, this is the one. And most times they don't know. Sometimes you want to give Beto O'Rourke credit for doing better than usual for Democrats. Okay, fine. But the hype wasn't, oh, he's going to do better than usual for the Democrats. It was that he's going to win. He's going to knock off Ted Cruz, who they can't stand so much. Putting the most money who, in the candidates who are running against the candidates you hate the most is not necessarily a winning strategy. The candidates you hate the most, there's a good chance they're in fairly reliably Republican uh, states or districts there. So, uh, But anyway, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be probably end up to be a lot of wasted resources. And uh, hey, Every dime that they spend in Kentucky is money that they're not spending in Maine and Colorado and North Carolina. No, that's exactly right. Two quick thoughts here. First of all, you mentioned that uh, sometimes the Democrats can win statewide at the state level. And I believe Matt Bevin right now is the least popular governor in America. And he's up this year. He was not supposed to win four years ago, so it's still certainly possible he could win re-election. But if he doesn't, I think that will greatly and artificially uh, inflate the hopes of Democrats for 2020, which could mean even more uh, worthless money pouring into that state. So that could be good. I'm also noticing the big alliteration game here, which is also working against Amy McGrath. You've got Mitch McConnell. You mentioned Cal Cunningham, Tom Tillis, and John James. Amy McGrath is just uh, <laughs> behind the eight ball here. They're like all superhero names. <laughs> Peter Parker, Clark Kent, Hugh Hewitt. <laughs> Lars Larson, Eric Erickson. Weird trait, weird trait with that. But anyway, yes. Uh, by the way, I just want to point out, Greg, I don't know about you. I'm still rooting for Bevan. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> That'd be the silver lining of a Bevan defeat. But again, look, you know, there are House districts in the South that Democrats can compete in. And maybe as the demographics change, um, they've got shot. We've seen a very dramatic change here in Virginia. 
North Carolina might be getting to that territory, but also you need the right kind of candidate to win statewide in places like that. Um, John Bell Edwards, the pro-life Democratic governor of Louisiana comes to mind. You're not going to win being vehemently anti-Trump and vehemently pro-choice and all the other positions that McGrath took. So um, good luck, Democrats. (laughs) No, not really. Jim, you said something very important there. It's important to find the right candidate. And that's never more true than when you're trying to fill that important job at your work. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be really easy. And you only have to go to one place to get it done. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Martini. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of every five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. There's nothing more frustrating than just being buried in a stack of resumes from people who want the job and you're trying to figure out uh, how to organize them in terms of uh, the best fit. But there's one thing worse, and that's hiring the wrong person. And ZipRecruiter is a great tool to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right now, three Martini Lunch listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Martini. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-I-N-I. ZipRecruiter.com slash Martini. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And for the third consecutive day, we're talking at least tangentially about the Jeffrey Epstein case. He was indicted on Monday on child sex trafficking charges. We've talked about his ties to various politicians, including uh, Trump and Bill Clinton over the years. Yesterday, we talked about Clinton's weird preemptive denial and getting the facts wrong in the denial. But there's also a current administration figure who is taking a lot of heat right now, and a lot of folks would say understandably so, and that would be Labor Secretary Alex Acosta, who back when this case was dealt with by the U.S. attorney, which he was, he's the one who ultimately signed off on the plea bargain that a lot of folks now believe meant that Jeffrey Epstein got off way too easy Uh, They talk about how the victims were never even notified of the deal. And uh, just in the end, it was a sweetheart deal. And they're even at the point now of suggesting that uh, he was soft on on child molesters and so forth. So Alex Acosta has tweeted on this, uh, saying that there's now new information that's come to light and that it's right to prosecute. And he did the best that he could at the time. We're now finding out that he's going to speak on this later this afternoon. Trump, to this point, is defending him, saying he's done a great job as labor secretary, but they are going to be looking at what happened back then and and Acosta's role in it. So what do you make of Acosta twisting in the wind here? I think what's particularly disappointing about this is that he and the administration seem really kind of unprepared for this issue to have resurfaced. I think if you're Acosta, there was that big Miami Herald expose about the deal back last fall. Uh, He chose not to respond to the questions from the newspaper, which I think was a, a bad mistake. Some other Miami lawyer, a defense attorney who had actually gone up against Acosta a bunch of times, wrote into the paper, wrote an op-ed that kind of defended Acosta and said that this was the, uh, you know, prosecutors face tough decisions. This was a way to make sure that Epstein would do some prison time, although I think it was a there was a work release involved. The witnesses and the, the victims would not have to testify and that this was, you know, basically amounted to sometimes prosecutors have to make tough decisions and, you know, take the best deal they can get. 
I suppose that's a defense. I, I think the more I've been thinking about it, and again, whether or not Acosta should resign, you could argue about whether this really has any impact on the job he's doing as Secretary of Labor. It does feel like an egregious misjudgment, though. And I guess the part I keep coming back to is, you know, you're, you're Alex Acosta, right? You become U.S. attorney. You are a federal prosecutor. You're, you're, you get up every morning and you want to put bad guys in jail. This comes across your desk. Epstein just sounds like a monster, right? I mean, this is a notorious, widespread, long-running, underage sex trafficking ring with all kinds of rich and powerful people. Um, I mean, there's a part of me that says, you know, if, if you if you want to be a prosecutor, isn't this like the Super Bowl? Isn't this like the biggest, you know, case of your life you're ever going to get? Isn't this the sort of thing where, you know, you, if you, you know, if this doesn't get your blood pumping as, as a guy whose job is to put criminals behind bars, what does? You know, are you, are you holding out for Hannibal Lecter or something? I mean, this is this is a huge, you know, stomach-turning case with, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of victims going back a long time. And you take a deal and you pass? And not only that, you take a deal and you pass in something that really keeps it under wraps? And, uh, you know, like, it just seemed really... Going up to the paint with the bases loaded and and you know two outs of you know, the most high stakes imaginable situation imaginable and you choose to bunt and it really does kind of seem like a, a bizarre like you almost want like why are you a prosecutor if you don't want to handle something like this because this is of course it's not easy but you know what like if it was easy everybody would become a prosecutor you know the, the, you know I'll, I'll to, to quote uh, uh, a league of their own the hard is what makes it great you know. And of course it would be, you know, Epstein's going to have the best lawyers. Of course he's going to have, you know, you know, his own version of the dream team. But if you're a federal prosecutor, man, if this isn't the case that you want to, you know, build your name on, I'd be the case you want to be remembered for, what is? So um, deeply disappointing. And I hope he's got good answers today. It really does seem like inexcusable, I, you know, for whatever reason, the more we learn about this, it is good that Epstein will be brought to full justice. It really feels like the justice system let him off with a slap on the wrist before, and um, I don't know if Acosta's reputation will really ever recover from this. Very hard to see how it would. Uh, we'll see, like you said, what he'll have to say today. So far, Republicans on Capitol Hill aren't saying much one way or the other either. So we'll see how much the pressure stays on him. And at this point, you got to think that it probably will. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And the... Women's soccer team is having their big parade in New York City today through the Canyon of Heroes. They won the World Cup uh, back-to-back, of course, the fourth time, I believe, the women have done so. And in addition to the excellent play on the field, there's been the political aspect of this. You've got the the leader of the team, the MVP of the World Cup, Megan Rapinoe, saying long before they won that she had no interest in ever going to the White House. And uh, the other big thing politically was equal pay for the women's team. They want to get paid the same thing the men's team is getting paid. And uh, the critics of that position are saying, well, you kind of need to bring in the same revenue if you want that to happen. Although the ratings for the World Cup were actually pretty good, specifically in the final. But now they've got an ally on Capitol Hill suggesting that no federal funds ought to go for getting ready for the 2026 Men's World Cup. If the women don't get equal pay and you're thinking, oh, let's see, who's this going to be? Gillibrand, maybe Stabenow, Kamala Harris? No. Joe Manchin introduced a bill Tuesday that would withhold federal funds for the 2026 World Cup unless the men's and women's national teams are given equal pay, according to The Hill. Manchin, who sits on the Senate Appropriations Committee, said he introduced the legislation after receiving a letter from the West Virginia University women's soccer coach urging him to support the U.S. women's national team as it pushes to get the same pay as the men's team. So 
Jim, I'm not sure why there are federal dollars involved in the World Cup in the first place, but what do you make of this getting new legs now and Joe Manchin leading the parade? The federal funds to the 2026 World Cup, I assume, are because the U.S. is one of the host countries. It is the first time they've had the tournament hosted by three countries. It's going to be Canada, Mexico, and the United States. I guess uh, until we get the new trade deal signed in, it would be called the NAFTA World Cup. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, look, we can argue, but we can have a separate conversation about whether that's a good idea and whether federal funds should go to this. Uh, I got to go to the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. On the one hand, it's a lot of fun. On the other hand, usually if you host a giant event like this, you end up building a whole bunch of structures that you're never really going to need that much again. It ends up becoming a giant headache for all the locals and, you know, turns into a bigger problem. By spreading it around a bunch of cities, maybe you aren't going to have everybody needing to build a new soccer stadium by now in 2026. But separately from that, soccer is in a kind of a weird position. And the U.S. women's team is kind of in an unusual position in that, one, soccer obviously in many countries is a hugely popular sport. And in the United States, it's a semi-popular sport. I know Major League Soccer has been going on for about 20 years you know, when, when the U.S. pays attention to the World Cup, uh, I, I've been joking the last couple of years that, you know, everybody turns into a nationalist around World Cup time <laughs> and the Olympics. So all of a sudden, you know, here's the thing. You know, people, at every time the World Cup's come along and the U.S., one of the U.S. teams does particularly well, people say, ah, oh, finally, Americans have learned to love soccer. Honestly, if it was the World Tiddlywigs tournament and it was us versus Russia in the final, your local sports bar would say, it's U.S. versus Russia, USA, because we love watching Americans beat other countries. Yeah. that's what we love the sport is incidental I, I would argue and so first of all i mean first congratulations to the women's team i honestly think the women's team is in a very odd situation in that despite the popularity of soccer all around the world the women's team has been really good for a really long time much better than the men's team in most international competitions particularly <laughs> world cups and as a result of for whatever you'd kind of figure oh somewhere in latin america somewhere in europe you'd have really good women's teams and nothing to take away from any of the uh, other teams that the U.S. beat along their way to the World Cup championship. But, uh, you know, I mean, what was it? Was it like 13 nothing to uh, against Thailand, Greg? Yes, yes, right out of the that's game. Like, that's a good first half for the Chicago Bears. <laughs> right. right. You know, um, they, they didn't get scored upon in a whole bunch of those games. But by and large, not it's a really unusual to see an international competition where the U.S. team is not just the best, but I'd argue the best and head and shoulders above the competition for something like that. So of course there's going to be higher than usual uh, interest over that, not over appreciation of what, you know, foreigners insist upon calling the beautiful game, but because as I said, we love watching Americans win. Why does, you know, why does the world cup uh, only get, you know, nominal influence on, on interest? And, you know, it, it goes up when Americans are in it and people get excited. We like to see the U S team win. And when the U S team isn't in it, like the last world cup, well, then we have to start rooting for teams of our ancestry. <laughs> right. fi- find somebody to like and, and root for them. But your know, level of interest is obviously going to be much lower. So that's the dynamic at work here. So when people say, oh, the U.S. team, is, the women's team isn't getting paid enough. Look, when the ratings are the same, when the merchandise sales are the same, when all of the other measuring sticks, and I think that was, was at Rapid Noir, where one of the other uh, players was on television, they said, look, this is how you demonstrate support for the women's team. Go out and buy their jerseys. Watch the games, you know, follow them on social media, you know, demonstrate that there's a fan base and you'll start seeing more equal thing. But again, it basically comes down to who's paying to see them, who's paying to attend them. How big is the TV audience to attract all those advertisers? I think this very well could happen in the not too distant future, because as I said, Americans like watching Americans winning. But in the end, I, I don't think there's any grand, you know, sexist conspiracy to do that. I'm going to date myself here way back when. 
I, I went to George Washington University. The women's basketball team was better than the men's basketball team. We had an excellent volleyball player who at one point had the NCAA record named Svetlana Vachorna. She was from Russia. And the crowds for, you know, men's sports were generally larger uh, than the women's sports. And, you know, what, once the women's team started winning a whole lot, then the other two crowds would go up a little bit. But, you know, people have a lot of options for entertainment, not even, you know, beyond sports, but also in the sports world. You're always going to be competing up against this. I think it's safe to say that this past week has probably been the best week for women's soccer in American history. But by and large, this is just kind of the nature of trying to attract an audience. Sports is ultimately entertainment. And nobody ever guaranteed that this was going to be easy. A lot to uh, think about here. Uh, it's interesting to see if they'll also push for uh, better pay for the, oh, I don't know, the Saudi women's team. Oh, wait. Yeah, <laughs> they, don't, they don't have one. I wonder why. Or many other of those countries that are a little or a lot more repressive uh, than just uh, on the pay scale. Well, my understanding, Greg, is that the uh, Saudi authorities won't let the women drive the ball down the field. <laughs> if they're chaperoned appropriately, maybe. Yeah. Oh, boy. A lot, uh, lot bigger issues than soccer there. Uh, Jim, uh, we'll call time there, and we'll reconvene tomorrow. I'll talk to you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to visit our good friends over at ZipRecruiter, ZipRecruiter.com slash martini. And tune in again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.